The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. Surrounded by Democrats and Republicans, Governor Tony Evers signs the shared revenue bill into law. Meanwhile, Republicans unveil their big plans for tax cuts. And desperate for rainfall, more heat and dry weather puts farmers on edge. I'm Frederica Freiber. Tonight on Here and Now, we preview the 2023 Farm Bill with Congressman Derek Van Orden. And one farmer shares his struggles with the current growing season. A child care provider braces for a funding gap and a look at whether summer school attendance has rebounded. It's Here and Now for June 23. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. The question tonight, could Governor Tony Evers veto the entire state budget over cuts made to the University of Wisconsin budget? The Joint Finance Committee late this week uh, voted to cut $32 million from so the UW system operating budget, uh, along with 188 positions to target diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Governor Evers had threatened to veto the budget well in the event of such cuts. Budget writers also voted to approve a $3.5 billion income tax cut. The largest reductions are for people in higher income brackets, like married joint filers, making more than $405,000 of income. Evers has said he opposes the top bracket tax cut. Republicans herald the cuts as they wrapped up budget work, sending it on to the legislature. We believe this is a historic budget. Uh, we invest historic amounts of money in our core priorities, while also providing for a historic tax cut, largest tax cut in history. It is misguided priorities entirely that we've seen up and down this budget, and the fact that people are going to lose their jobs and multimillionaires are going to make an additional $1.8 million because of this is an absolute shame. In Washington, and of importance to Wisconsin, Congress is working on the Farm Bill, an omnibus multi-year bill that focuses on farm commodity support programs and most especially on nutrition assistance for low-income people like the SNAP or Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Wisconsin 3rd District Congressman Derek Van Orden sits on the House Agriculture Committee and has held listening sessions on the 2023 Farm Bill. We talked with him earlier this week and started by asking what farmers are telling him are their priorities. Across the district and across the nation, because we've been holding these listing sessions from the Agriculture Committee around the country, uh, Texas, California, Oregon, Florida, uh, New York State, upstate New York, and uh, we'll be bringing G.T. Thompson to the district, the chairman of the Ag Committee, coming up here next month. Uh, we hear the same thing really across the board, that input costs are having a devastating effect on our farms. People are concerned about being able to turn their farms over to the next generation of farmer. And we have to remember that uh, if we want family farms, that's what that means, um, passing a, a farm from, from one generation to the next. Uh, they're very concerned about uh, labor also. Those are really kind of the top three things. Yeah, so when you say input costs, you mean the cost of, of growing the things that farmers you are bet. producing? Diesel, uh, fertilizer, seed, um, and then if you want to uh, count equipment costs in there also, because spare parts are going up a tremendous amount across the board. One of the things that we have to do is get back to being energy independent. 
by far the largest expenditure in the Farm Bill is the Nutrition Assistance Program for low-income right. households. About yep. 80%, I understand, of a potentially trillion-dollar 2023 uh, Farm Bill. What changes would you like to see around food stamps or food share, as we call it here in Wisconsin? Well, it's actually 81%. And I volunteered to be on the subcommittee for SNAP because I was raised in abject rural poverty by a single mother. And we were on what was then food stamps. It's no longer, you don't have a stamp anymore. It's the SNAP program. So I used those, those programs as a child. And we had subsidized school lunches. Um, I had government cheese. When uh, I was being shot at as an active duty Navy SEAL, my wife and I used WIC to help feed my children. So I wanted to be on the SNAP committee because people on both sides of the aisle need to understand that, that these are vital programs and they're designed to be a hand up, not a hand out, because uh, you want people to get back on their feet again. And there are times when Americans need this assistance. So one of the things that we got through that the Biden administration said was a non-starter was the work requirements. And who those apply to are able-bodied adults without dependents. And 79.5% of Wisconsinites voted for work requirements in April. 80% of the third congressional district voted for those work requirements. And I think it's really important that people understand the dignity of, of labor. I remember getting my first paycheck from a guy named Raleigh Bevins. He handed it to me, and I was so proud because I knew that I'd earned that money. And that started a system uh, for me of working and uh, being more independent. So when people are able to support themselves and their families, it gives you a great feeling of pride. And once you can take pride in your work, um, you tend to do better throughout society. And that's what we're trying to do, make sure that people are in a place where they can become productive members of society. And that's why I wanted to be on the SNAP committee, to see how we can shape the policies to make the most sense with that. One thing I don't understand is that already the new debt ceiling law imposes new work requirements for older people who get uh, food share or the supplemental nutrition assistance. Uh, would both things be happening at the same time then? No, they'll have to be rectified. The law has to be congruent. And uh, raising the, the limit, I'm 53 years old. I work probably, I don't know, 16 hours a day when I'm here in Washington, D.C., we're talking about 20 hours a week, 20 hours a week, either working, looking for work, seeking job training, or being educated for a job. That's 20 hours a week. And as I said, 79.5% of Wisconsinites and 80% of the third congressional district voted for work requirements. So we are not out of line with the thinking of the vast majority of the state of Wisconsin. I won by 3.8 points. Um, I didn't win by 80%. That means a lot of Democrats in my district want these work requirements, and I was sent here uh, to Washington, D.C. to represent them, along with the Republicans that voted for me. Is is the inference there that, that people who might be accepting um, food share dollars um, to, to buy food uh, because they are low income are just lazy? No, and I, I really think that's wholly inappropriate that you'd even ask me that question. That is just silly. I told you I grew up on food stamps and my mother was not lazy by any means. So that is a dog whistle, unfortunately, that liberal media uses to try to entice a Republican into saying something stupid. I volunteered to be on the SNAP program on purpose because these programs are valuable. And my mother, Carol Ann Mulligan, was not lazy. She was five foot two and harder than woodpecker lips. And she worked 
as much as she could to take care of me and my brother. So I don't appreciate that question. I would suggest, sir, that I am not saying that you or your mother or your family were lazy, but that is something that uh, gubernatorial candidate Tim Michaels spoke to in his campaign running for governor. It's 2023, ma'am, and I'm a member of the United States Congress. I didn't run for governor. Across the aisle, uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin uh, would like to see renewed funding for farmer mental health assistance. Uh, yes. how, how needed is that from your perspective? The, the number one facility in each one of my 19 counties that houses people in mental health crises are our county jails, and that's terrible. Uh, it's not just our farmers. It's across the board. The mental health issues that have spiked after these incredibly uh, horrific instances of shutting people out of everything during COVID, they've just skyrocketed. And we need to get money for mental health. How that looks, you know, I'm not quite sure, but I went over to Mark Pocan's office to speak to him about this. Now, Mark Pocan and I disagree probably 98% of the time. And that means we agree 2% of the time. And people sent me to Washington, D.C. to find that 2% of the time that I agree with people. And I've actively sought out my Democrat colleagues to solve some of these very, very important issues. Uh, Congressman Derek Van Orden, thanks very much. Well, you're welcome. Have a good day. Thanks. You can watch the full-length interview with Congressman Van Orden on our website at pbswisconsin.org news. Many farmers are worried about their crops as dry conditions continue throughout much of the state. This past May was the fourth driest on record, and June isn't providing the much-needed rainfall so far. This map shows how much rain the state has gotten in June compared to previous years, with large swaths receiving 25 percent or less than average. And the U.S. Drought Monitor shows the majority of the state in moderate drought, with the northwest and southwest corners newly designated as severe drought. Marissa Wojcik spoke with a farmer and a UW Extension educator to find out how parched crops are faring. I run about 450 acres. We farm uh, corn, beans, and hay. Stan Turner is a cash crop farmer in the rolling hills of Monticello. It started out great, and then uh, everything got planted when it was supposed to, and everything took off good. And the brakes got put on because of the dry weather. It's getting really, really dry right now. And if we don't get some rain here pretty soon, we don't know how bad it's going to be for sure. Because now we're going into the, the driest part of the summer on a normal year, July and August, and we're already dry. So it's kind of, it's getting very concerning. The next 10 days is really going to be critical for this corn and and beans and the hay especially, because the hay takes a lot of moisture. So it's very concerning right now. I've never seen it like this. I've farmed my whole life. In 2012, we had quite a drought, but that was later in the year. But to be this dry this early is kind of unheard of. We had decent winter moisture, and our soils were in really good shape this spring. So the crops are still taking advantage of some of that uh, good early spring moisture. Uh, but we just haven't had um, the moisture re replenished in the soil just, just yet this year. Josh Camps is the Regional Crops and Soils Educator for UW Extension in Southwest Wisconsin. Turner called the local Extension office. That's quite a difference. For help. This plant actually, if it's going to grow well, it's going to open up so that it has all this surface area for photosynthesis. 
um, but since it's so dry, it's trying to roll up to conserve the moisture to not transpire any extra out of the plant. But we really are just needing to be patient for some more rainfall to help our crops take the next step. How much longer can they hold out? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Uh, I'm gonna be optimistic until we celebrate the 4th of July. At that point, I think we're hitting kind of a, a, a real milestone with the fact that these crops, some crops may not be able to reverse course. Um, I know we were visiting here about alfalfa on this particular farm, and alfalfa is an interesting crop in that it can actually go dormant and it can maintain its, its life, and then it can actually come back out of dormancy then and produce later in the season. Uh, more of our tr traditional annual crops will not do, do that. Um, corn, soybean, for instance, once they've kind of reached that permanent wilting point, um, they really they really won't be able to rebound the same as some of our perennial forage as well. It keeps telling us we're supposed to start getting more rains in July, so that's all we can pray for right now is more rain because we're going to need quite a bit of it. It's just it's just a, there's nothing you can do. I've thought about starting to cut hay. A lot of guys are starting to cut their second crop hay. I've decided I'm going to hold off because it's just the hay is under such stress, and if we don't get rain. Will it come back? I mean, there's a lot of ifs in the equation, and I sell a lot of hay, and I don't want to lose my hay crop. The corn and beans, they've got at least another 10 days that they'll be able to survive this pretty decently, I think, in most areas. But within the next 10 days, if they don't get rain, they're going to be in a world of hurt. I mean, we've already, I'm assuming we've already lost some of the yield. What are you most concerned about at this point? I'm most concerned about uh, uh, being able to have some answers when growers call, um, being able to uh, help them stay positive, um, help them think about, uh, you know, what are, the, what are the needs that they have immediately. There may be a chance that we can plant a second crop um, if we do get some late season rain, so maybe middle of July to beginning of August. Um, we'll have to work with our crop insurance agent to make sure that we don't affect the um, crop insurance coverage on our first crop, but there may be a chance to grow a second crop at that point. We don't have 100% insurance coverage, uh, but it will definitely help cover the input side of most farms and then give them that chance to be able to participate again next year. I do have crop insurance, and uh, so you almost have to in this day and age because the input costs are so high that you just can't afford not to have it. I mean, if you have a, a total loss, you could be in big trouble. I mean, it's, it's not easy. Are crops in general prepared, or are farmers prepared to handle this kind of back and forth of extremes? A lot of it starts with how we manage our soil. You know, when we're in more of a uh, weather risk situation, you know, what does that do to our chance of having a crop? So. I think we're starting to learn all that and try to figure out how those all fit together. Um, I know there's climate smart type work being done at USDA. Uh, so hopefully that has in mind, you know, the goals of farmers for their land management too, uh, because ultimately that, 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 that really is where we're going to, you know, have the biggest re results um, is when our private landowners, you know, have the power to make the decisions that are best for them. We have experience in the past of, of, of other droughts or other times that have been really stressful on our farm and on our family. 
I, I think uh, pulling in and saying hi maybe to your neighbors, ask them how they're doing, uh, this can really cause havoc on the psyche of our farmers. Your mind's going 100 miles an hour, you know, how can you do something a little bit different to try to offset this expense if you're not going to make, you know, make this amount of money because your crops are going to be down. Yeah, you got a lot of things going on. I mean, it, it keeps you up at night. Reporting from Monticello, I'm Marissa Wojcik for Here and Now. I'd like to say it really, really helpful. Already finding and affording childcare in Wisconsin is difficult for many families. And now state budget action this week defunded a pandemic subsidy program that Governor Tony Evers wanted to make permanent. The Child Care Counts program meant hundreds of millions of dollars in federal support to child care providers for staffing and to maintain costs for parents. The federal dollars go away fully in February, but are steeply reduced for providers starting this month. We check in with one child Child care provider in Richland Center for her reaction to the end of the Child Care Counts program. We're joined by Jenny Schrock, and thanks very much for being here. Thank you for having me. So you have some staff-intensive care because you provide infant care, I understand, the only such center where you are. What will the loss of the federal dollars mean to your center and the families that you serve? Um, I'm going to have to raise fees for the families. Um, because I am not going to be able to budget correctly to give the teachers that I have the quality um, pay that they need to keep the quality teachers. I will have to cut my budgets, you know, my supplies. We won't be able to update any equipment. Um, I mean, it's going to be a tight, tight go of it without this money. Do you expect uh, that given that you have to raise fees that some families will make the choice to forego child care as a result that you will th therefore lose families? I do. I do. I, I feel people will not be able to afford it. They will not be able to work. It, it's going to be a, a domino effect. So um, you were describing that under the um, program you were getting about $10,000 a month. What, what were you able to do with that extra federal uh, money coming to you through this program? That money was paying um, the payroll taxes that I have to pay for, my, for having my staff. Um, and also I was updating things. I recently opened this Richland Center area and provided three more rooms um, for infant care, but that was with this child care counts money, helped pay for the taxes, and then we also had the partner up, um, and that helped pay for those that three extra doors. Um, partner up is still going through, I believe, Feb I don't remember, one more year through next year, and let this child care counts cuts off in February. How difficult is it to maintain staffing levels even with the federal subsidy? It's hard. It's hard. I don't pay near what I, I would like to because of, I mean, I have some very, very good staff, very good girls that love their jobs. They love the kiddos. Um, but I can't pay them what a factory would pay or um, somebody down the road, the hospitals can pay. Um, but they love their jobs and they love what they do. It's hard to compete with the outside what you do is, is so vital and so important and such hard work. 
What is your message um, to the legislature about this program and its importance? I'm really hoping that um, they can revisit it and you know find a way to put it into the budget. It's something that I feel has helped families. I mean, the funds, we've opened up 200 slots within the last two years just with these funds and the help of these funds. Um, we're helping lots of families get back to work. We, we are in the Richland Center area. They were not able to find ch childcare. We're moving people from other states up to Wisconsin because of this childcare. Um, like I just had a family sign up from Georgia, someone moved from Texas. So, I mean, this program, um, I don't rely on federal money, but it is very helpful to keep my doors open and keep the quality high quality care that we give here at Sunshine. And one of the Republican co-chairs of the Budget Committee said that they will be banking $45 million available in aid for low-income families and $15 million for a revolving loan fund for child care center upgrades. Is that something that you think sounds would be helpful? Um, the low-income families, yes, but you're really missing the middle-income families or the you know, the, or the middle-income families that don't qualify for those programs. Um, and that's where I can keep my fees at a decent level for those families. We appreciate your time. Jenny Schrock, uh, good luck. Thank you. School is out for summer, and now summer school begins. But who's going, and how might extra class time help make up for learning loss suffered during the pandemic? We turn to Sarah Shaw, who specializes in education as senior researcher for the Wisconsin Policy Forum. And Sarah, thanks very much for being here. My pleasure. So we know, according to the Department of Public Instruction, that the actual enrollment numbers for summer school this summer don't come out until October. Uh, but what do trends from recent prior years of summer school attendance across the state tell us? So prior to the pandemic, summer school enrollment had generally been increasing. And then the pandemic hit and summer 2020 saw a 57% decrease. The question was what was going to happen starting in summer 2021. And what we saw in that year was that enrollment was back up to 88.3% of 2019 enrollment. So what we describe as a partial recovery. A lot of districts fully recovered, um, many did not. And then we looked recently to see what happened for summer 2022, so last year at this time. And the numbers barely budged, so it's only up by an additional half a percentage point. We're at 88.8% of what the numbers were in 2019. And these numbers are relevant because while summer school isn't everything to everyone, it was serving a purpose prior to the pandemic, and the question is, has it been able to even regain that original purpose, much less be able to provide additional support to help learning recovery? So why wouldn't enrollment mostly have rebounded after the worst of COVID? There are a lot of hypotheses. I think in that summer of 2021, that first year kind of back, there were concerns of staff burnout, of continued COVID hesitancy, even with the vaccines, districts kind of just getting themselves going again. As we get further out, I think the explanations become trickier to pin down. Um, it is a tight labor market, so teachers have a lot of options or had a lot of options at least of what they could be doing over the summer. Um, 
budgets at the state and local level were fairly constrained. But at the same time, many districts had access to federal relief funds that could have helped um, fund that summer school. So probably most related to staffing, but also questions in there about school budgets and parental interests or parents and guardians thinking about how do they want their kids spending the summer. So you wrote kind of a tale of two districts, one being Milwaukee, which did not rebound significantly uh, at all, and, and one being Green Bay, uh, which did and really leaned into this kind of um, summer school engagement. What's the difference between these two districts? Well, it's a little difficult to just look at summer school because each of these districts are taking on so many different efforts of which summer school is a piece. But Green Bay really made the strategic investment to say summer school is the lever we're going to pull or one of the major levers we're going to pull to get our teachers used to being back in person, get our students used to being back in person. They switched from a part day program to a full day program because that gave that them extra time with kids to not only help them catch up academically and accelerate their learning, um, but also reestablish some of those social ties that really were frayed or in some cases even broken through the pandemic. And it was a response to parents who were asking for full day childcare, that summer school for all of its benefits for students is also childcare for parents and guardians. So that was a, a big investment on Green Bay's part that in many respects from enrollment seems like it was very successful, but also brought budgetary challenges for the district. Just super, NPS has put, yeah, go yeah, ahead. NPS has been putting its investments elsewhere. So summer school has really not been a primary level that they've pulled as part of their recovery efforts. Just super, super quickly, uh, we know that the COVID relief funds uh, expire in 2024, funds that had helped districts kind of um, do these summer school programs. What's on the horizon after that? After that, uh, it depends a lot on what happens with the state legislature. The question is to what extent can districts pull on state and local dollars um, to help smooth that transition away from the federal funds. All right, Sarah Shaw, thanks very much for your expertise. My pleasure, thanks for having me. For more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website at pbswisconsin.org and then click on the news tab. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.